0: Welcome to this Law & Sport podcast with me Sean Kotchul, the founder and CEO I'm joined today with editor and colleague at Law and Sport Chris Bond Hi Chris. Hi everyone um, Today's special guests are Zane Shehab who's a partner at Kerman & Co and Manuela Mackey who is a partner at the Trademark Attorney's Kelty. Uh, thank you both for joining us today
1: Thank you very much for having <laughs> us.
0: Today's topic that we're going to focus on is trademarks in sport um, but before we get into that I wondered if both of you could explain uh, what your roles are and the type of work that you do in the sports sector.
2: So I'm, um, I'm a partner at a London law firm, I specialise in commercial sports law um, and also that deals with intellectual property issues such as uh, licensing, sponsorship agreements, image rights, and brand portfolio management. Um, I'm also seconded um, as the in-house legal counsel for Wimbledon and I act for the whole organisation across all departments.
0: So you're you're quite busy at the moment then? <laughs> Very busy at the moment. Well thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, Manuela, uh, can you describe a bit about your practice please?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, I'm a partner in the um, trademark um, attorney firm, Kelty. Uh, We specialize in um, brand protection, particularly clearance searches and the actual process of registering trademarks, so advising on registrability, uh, that sort of work. Um, A lot of what we do uh, is transferable in terms of across industries, but my firm in particular and my practice in particular is heavily focused on sports, uh, just it started with a number of coincidence, uh, coincidences, it started with a sports client and that led to referrals, recommendations, and at one point in my career I realized that there was something there to build on uh, and that, yes, um, trademark attorney skills are transferable across industries, but there are some peculiarities of sports uh, that are particular to that industry. and. And I could sort of, um, you know, build on my experience in that sector and um, sort of um, on on that basis, I developed a a trademark uh, sports practice. So I'm not a sports lawyer, I specialise in brand protection, but um, my practice has got a strong emphasis on sports.
0: Thank you. Um, So that brings us nicely um, onto our first question, which is why is it important for major sporting events such as Wimbledon um, to register marks?
2: Yeah, well, obviously a registered trademark is a valuable commercial asset. It's commercially exploitable. Um, it's, it's fairly easy to um, protect and enforce. Um, it's, a, it's a deterrent, and it also is renewable indefinitely. Um, and if, I, if, if, if we contract with suppliers, sponsors, and partners um, who, who pay hundreds of thousands, um, sometimes millions, to be associated with Wimbledon, they'll want to know that we can protect our marks um, and their licence and prevent any ambush marketers who haven't actually
0: paid that money to associate themselves with Wimbledon. And so just to draw on something you said there, you said it was a deterrent in 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 what way does it act as a deterrent? so for for the non um, the people who are not that familiar with with trademarks and their and their use commercially, how does that help?
2: Sure, well, it gives you a monopoly right. Um, in the trademark so that prevents other people from using that trademark um, and so if, if you have that right it acts as a deterrent and prevents uh, sometimes prevents other people from taking the risk of legal action um, by using the right thank yeah. you so mamala
1: I was only going to add that the, the value of a trademark registration um, is also in the fact that it's a prima facie enforceable right So in the UK and in some other jurisdictions around the world, in the US in particular, um, having used a trademark, in particular having used it for a certain period of time uh, to a certain extent, uh, gives you goodwill in the trademark and non-registered rights. However, to prove those rights, if you ever wanted to enforce them, Uh, It's a very time-consuming and costly um, exercise, whereas if you you have a trademark registration, you have a certificate that is prima facie evidence of your rights. So all you have to prove is similarity or identity of the marks and similarity or identity of the goods or services concerned and likelihood of confusion. So it's a much uh, easier um, process enforcing your rights. So I think that's one important aspect of trademark registration.
2: Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so otherwise, without the trademark registration, as Manuela has said, you have to rely on the law of passing, lo- passing off, um, which is notoriously time consuming and expensive.
0: And so with, with Wimbledon on us at this moment in time, um, is there anything that's particularly unique about uh, Wimbledon's uh, brand protection strategy, I guess, and, and registration of, of trademarks?
2: Um, they're, they're very proactive um, in looking at what they have protected and, and what they require, um, which is how we came about to um, to the the color mark registration. Um, we we found that a lot of these infringers, Giving an example of a ticket resale platform, who were selling tickets and they weren't unauthorized to do so, um, and, and consumers were buying those tickets and, and turning up at Wimbledon, and the tickets were cancelled. Um, they, they were, instead of using the famous Crossed Rackets logo or, or the word Wimbledon, which are both trademark registered, mm-hmm. um, they were looking at other ways of associating themselves with Wimbledon. And one of those ways was to use the colorway, the purple and green colorway. Um, and on a website, it can be quite persuasive. It looks like it's official Wimbledon. And, and it, it was leading consumers to believe they were official and consumers were parting with thousands of pounds. Um, so... Uh, they are—they're very proactive in in trying to protect their marks, both for their own benefit, but also consumer consumer protection benefit.
0: That, that, that's interesting. Is, 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 as you, say, you said that that was relatively reactive. You said you were responding to um, tickets, uh, ticket yeah. sales that were trying to pass themselves off as as, as Wimbledon. Is, is that the usual approach, or do you, do you get on the front foot as well and look for other elements it, it, of it, it, uh, the Wimbledon brand that could be exploited?
2: We certainly get on the front foot. Um, so if there's taglines that we need to register, we'll, we'll register those before we actually release the taglines. Um, yeah. But with a colour mark, it's it it's it been used since 1909. So whatever we did, I've only been at Wimbledon for two two, two or three years. Whatever we did would have been sort of re- reactive because it had built up such a goodwill for over a century. Um, and. It's, it's, it's very difficult to actually register a trademark, a as, as uh, color trademark, as Manuela will know. Um, so that, that, in any case, is going to take a, a period of time in which to do so. So it was reactive, but we did it as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, and I think I'd be, I just wanted to add one comment and then perhaps ask Zane to explain a bit more about the, the actual process that Wimbledon and he personally went through to get the color mark registered um, because uh, just for people who are not familiar with trademarks, um, Registering color marks is very, very difficult. Um, Once you have a trademark registration, you have a monopoly right in a particular sign or word for particular goods and services that are listed in the trademark application. Now, there's another side to it, is that if on the one hand, the sort of the law gives a monopoly, on the other hand, the law needs to take into account a freedom for... Other people or the general public to be able to use that particular sign, word, or in this case, a colour. So to, to to grant somebody the exclusive right in a particular colour in a particular sector is yeah. something very very exceptional. And you can only achieve that generally by proving to the satisfaction of the relevant, of, of the competent trademark office that um, you have used that color or that combination of colors to such an extent that in a particular sector, for example, sport or tennis, the public in seeing those colors will associate them with your tournament, with your organization. So it is a very, very high test to meet. And um, that's why uh, I think they'd be interested. From a trademark, um, trademark attorney perspective, I'd be interested to hear from you what sort of evidence you found. Uh, you sorry, you submitted um, to achieve that registration, and also how far back did you go in terms of um, time term, duration of use?
2: Sure. Um, well, first of all, we thought it was prudent to get a survey um, to see um, to attempt to illustrate where the green and purple were the colours that were most predominantly associated with the championships. And that was a survey of people at the grounds in and around Wimbledon. Um, That survey evidence was useful, but obviously other things are associated with Wimbledon, um, such as the all-white. So it wasn't 100% useful. Um, So to back that survey evidence up, we went and collated um, a huge amount of pictorial, physical evidence, um, and some of it, as you alluded to, dated back to the beginning of the 20th century (laughs) Um, that long ago. So I was was, was literally going to the the museum (laughs) and and asking for old programs um, and uh, other publications to try and prove that the use of the green and purple in the way that we were trying to register it was Mm -hmm. longstanding. Um, Then we had witness statements um, from the offices of, of Wimbledon backing up that evidence, um, and then we submitted. Um, initially, it wasn't successful based on on what you just said. Um, color per se is not normally regarded as uh, an indicator of the origin of the goods. Um, it's It's more surface decoration or a pattern you might find on a t-shirt. Um, so it was initially rejected. Um, and then we had a personal hearing, um, and during the personal hearing, um, we uh, convinced the IPA that, although they may not, the colours may not originally have distinctive character. That distinctive character had been acquired uh, over, uh, over, you know, a hundred years, um, and um, thankfully um, they agreed, uh, along with all the survey evidence and and the the physical evidence that we provided.
1: Wow. Um, th- so, did it go through first time around with the hearing or? Um did you have several
2: yeah. attempts. Yes. It, it okay. went. It went through first time around, subject to a couple of tweaks to the classes that we registered mm. Mm. trademark under. Um, so when, when you register a trademark, you you have to choose the classes. So it, it might be um, sporting events or it might be clothing. Um, mm. One of our classes was slightly wide and it was it was clothing. Um, and um, as a compromise, we narrowed that to um, tennis clothing. Um, because green and purple really, in, in in the tennis sphere, is really related to Wimbledon.
1: How often do you find you enforce that registration for the colour mark? Um,
2: is it very useful? Uh,
1: yeah, we we are
2: enforcing right now, and over the last month, um, we've maybe enforced the colour trademark thirty or forty times.
1: Wow, so it's uh, yeah, it's been a very useful exercise then uh, obtaining that registration.
2: I, I, I think so. Um, it's, it's, it's also strengthened any case that we might have for passing off, because as you sure. said, you have, you have to prove distinctiveness in the colours, and having the trademark there, we've already got that evidence.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. The evidence is there. You've done that work, so you can always yeah. uh, go back to it. Yeah.
0: And so, in in a sporting context, is it going to be rather rare that there's going to be that many um, events? That are going to have that level of distinction and and goodwill that's been acquired is not going to you know that you can put there's probably only a handful of events that have been going on going on for that long, and to have that that level of distinction, or do you think it's going to be something that we're going to see more frequently in the future?
2: I think it's yeah it's it's a very unique um, event Wimbledon, um, maybe only a couple of other events certainly in this country maybe the Ryder Cup has that sort of distinctiveness with the the green jacket and. Things like that, but um, yeah, because of the difficulties in registering colour trademarks, I I don't think that there'll be a flurry of people looking to do that for for smaller events.
1: Yeah, I think for the trademark office to grant um, an exclusive right in a colour it has to be a pretty exceptional circumstance in pretty exceptional circumstances so the you know the level of um recognition of that color or com- color combination has to be very very high because once you have that registration it can exclude you can prevent other people from using that color and you know uh, there is a there's a um, sort of a, uh, an op- a opposite interest in, in people to be free to use colors as they please isn't it
0: and so um are there well, thanks for that. It's one very enlightening and, and as, as Manuela said, Zane, it seems like it was a good use of your time going on these sort of cultural tours around these museums and, and other places acquiring all the evidence.
1: It must have been incredibly I've interesting. <laughs>
0: I've had worse jobs. <laughs> um, are there any other unusual trademarks for sporting events that you, you guys have come across?
1: Um, let me think. Events. Well, it, always on the um, subject of colour, I've come across a EU trademark registration by Barcelona FC for the colours uh, blue and purple. So blue and and red, uh, and that is an EU. Register trademark is a pretty old registration. And I've never managed to find out whether that was uh, obtained through evidence of acquired distinctiveness or whether it just went through um examination without objections um i don't know but that is uh, in existence and it mm. is valid so perhaps, that's another
0: perhaps someone um, someone listening can someone listening can get in contact and let yes, us know
1: yeah yeah if somebody knows how that was obtained uh, i'd be very interested to find out if it went through without objections i'd be surprised but you know um in the early days of the uipo maybe um examination criteria were a bit more relaxed than they are today i find the eu intellectual property office is uh, becoming more and more strict on matters of uh, distinctiveness and um, you know um, sort of uh, marks that should be sort of all signs or colors or words that should be free for everyone to use I was just going but to another to ask Manu- sorry you, sorry, you go, go ahead zane
2: on Barcelona you said that um, perhaps the intellectual property offices were a little bit more relaxed back in the day does that open up those older trademarks to challenges?
1: I would say, well, no, because um, there is a defense to invalidity um, proceeding on the basis that uh, the mark should never been granted in a situation like this, which is to prove that the mark has in the meantime acquired distinctiveness. So I mm. would say that probably in football, th- that color combination of that sh- that sh- particular shade of blue and that particular shade of red, in combination in football certainly would bring to the minds of the public uh, the Barcelona jerseys. So I mm. think um, potentially, but uh, I think Barcelona would probably could probably mount a pretty good defense based on um, acquired distinctiveness even after the the registration was granted. Okay. So you can you can defend the, the mark retrospectively with use that you have built up uh, since the registration. Um, yep. In terms of other trademarks, well, for example, it'd be interesting to talk about one that was refused, which is Barcelona applied to register the silhouette of their logo. So effectively, the logo, the, the famous logo, but without any of the word elements and the decorative elements, simply the si- silhouette. Harley Davidson obtained it and. Um, and, and Barcelona didn't. So um, again, you know, um, Harley Davidson applied um, a while ago, and they have an EU trademark registration for the silhouette of their logo. Barcelona applied; I think it was a couple of years ago, and they they fought it through all the way through to the uh, European Court of Justice, but um, it was uh, it was refused ultimately. So that's another sort of. Um, non-traditional trademarks say
0: well again if there's anyone out there who who can think of um, some other unique ones uh we'd love to hear from them it'd be quite interesting to sit, to to hear like globally um you know what what issues people have in other jurisdictions outside of Europe and you know we, I know there's been some, some some good ones in the in the in the US I think and uh in other jurisdictions um, i'm i i'm uh, zane did you have anything to add i'm just conscious or chris i'm just conscious of time what is interesting is, um, and I should probably shouldn't
2: say this, but it, it's quite um, enjoyable to see how these, how the ambush marketers are getting around um, trademark protection. That um, they're getting more and more uh, clever about the way they try and associate themselves with events. Um, we've we've seen that, uh, for example, the Ryder Cup. Um, we used to act for the Ryder Cup, um, and because because. The Ryder Cup has a lot of intellectual property protection, uh, lots of trademarks. Um, ambush marketers have to attempt to um, find a more ingenious way to associate themselves. And one year, I think it was the 2014 Ryder Cup, a uh, uh, well-known betting firm, um, instead of instead of doing the usual, like, like using the name Ryder Cup or, or another trademark of Ryder Cup, they, they hired an eagle to fly overhead. At the um, at the tournament itself, and and film and film the tournament. Um, um, in the end, it, it, it was just bluster, but they got they got their association with, with Ryder Cup and Peter. And it, it, you know, it was it was a it was a new story, and so they they achieved their aim. Um, so probably shouldn't say it, but some of the stuff they do is actually quite clever. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think the particular betting firm you're talking about has made a business model out of (laughs) ambush marketing. (laughs) They've uh, they've, um, been up to some very entertaining stunts, actually. In a cheap way. It's
0: a cheap way to associate stuff. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing your your knowledge on the matter and, and your experiences.